Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and this time my special interviewee, a Liberal Democrat council leader, Stephen Robinson from Chelmsford. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Hello, Mark. Lovely to have a Liberal Democrat in power, yeah. exercising power, yeah. uh, with yeah. me this time. I guess that is a pretty good starting point, which is what does a council leader actually do? Well, I think it's one of those things that um, people make the job fit uh, mm. different circumstances. Um, obviously, as a district tier council, we're not quite as large as a unitary or county council. Um, but it's the job fundamentally is about the same as leadership of any organisation, which is about giving um, strategic guidance, um, leading a team, uh, getting the best out of your team, um, but bearing in mind, of course, that... Um, although uh, councillors get an mm. allowance, it's not a salary, it's mm. not a full-time job, and um, it's a lot of it is about the volunteer time mm. that you put in. And indeed, in the allowances that are set, when they're set, mm. a deduction, they mm. decide what you should be getting as an allowance, and then they take a lump of it off because you should enjoy doing some of it, so they take some <laughs> of it away anyway. And so what are the main areas of responsibility that you and the council have? Because, of course, yeah. the long-term story is, is about people from local government in particular, but more generally complaining that local government doesn't have nearly as much power in Britain as, say, the mayors of towns in France do. But there's still quite a lot of power that rests with yourself, isn't there? Yeah, as, I mean, as the council leader, I have more influence over what happens to day-to-day lives than the Member of Parliament. Mm. Um, obviously, top of our agenda, as it is for most other Liberal Democrats, mm. is the climate emergency that, and how are we going to go carbon mm. neutral mm. Um, we declared a climate and ecology emergency in July, along with many other councils, in, and we are setting out our plans to be uh, carbon neutral as a council by 2030 on the road to helping the district and the rest of the country become carbon neutral in the 2040s. So that's top of our agenda, as is the affordability of housing. Um, housing is in crisis, across, particularly across southern England, and we have an affordability crisis, um, whether you're renting or buying. Mm. And so we're determined to address the affordability crisis. Um, also, uh, we are responsible for leisure services and parks, uh, grounds maintenance and sweeping the streets, all of which have an impact on everybody's mm. daily life. At the district here, we, in, we don't have responsibility for highways, which is the cause of many public complaints and that's a county council uh, responsibility. So you can still point at potholes and blame someone else for them? We can definitely do that. Um, So you became council leader last year so in three years or so you'll be hopefully up for re-election with a record to point at. What are you hoping will be the things that you can whether literally or metaphorically point at to say to residents this is the difference I made, I and my colleagues made? Well, literally, we will be able to point at uh, more affordable housing, Mm. whether it's housing to rent Mm. or shared ownership, that kind of thing. Um, We will have gone green on a a wider range Mm. of things than we have done so far. We've already gone 100% green on our electricity, Mm. uh, but we'll have lots more electric vehicle charging points. Mm. We will be... um, Working, we will have progressed further our garden village community plan. Part of our local plan mm. includes a garden village, and we are determined to ensure that that part of our local plan mm. is a genuinely sustainable community. We want to see a lot more 
jobs in Chelmsford because Chelmsford is a very high commuting town and the more jobs we can create in Chelmsford have, that gives people the opportunity to not have to commute up to London so those are a number of the things that we're working on um, and it's been a great it's been great to work with a fantastic team of both new Liberal Democrat councillors and officers at the council who are all working together on this and is there anything, well, I guess there are many areas where you probably feel frustrated that the council doesn't have as much powers or responsibility as, as you would wish, where central government uh, has, has control and obviously is getting it wrong because central government isn't led by somebody. Well, actually, it's led by somebody with a slightly similar hairstyle to yours, I guess. But anyway, not, not, as, uh, not as politically effective and astute as yourself. Um, what is the sort of the main cause of frustration I'm assuming there is at least one cause of frustration in your dealings with central government. What tends to frustrate the most? Well, I guess part of it is how long things take. Uh, the long and drawn-out mm. process that we have to go through, for instance, for bidding for government grants, mm. and um, it's also a function of there just not being enough money in the system. Mm. Uh, local councils are forever having to cut money out <coughs> of their budgets in order to make up for the shortfall from central government. And, and what's the balance at the moment for your council budget of roughly how much is central government versus what you have control over in terms of income? Well, most district councils, and including ours, no longer get a general mm. government grant yeah. at all. Um, so its business rates mm. is the main um, constraint, mm. one of the key constraints in that it's still set by central government. And although we collect all the business mm. rates, we only get to keep 3% of it. Right. Um, a, a large chunk of it goes to the county council and the rest of it sort of goes into the national pool to yeah. be redistributed. And presumably Chelmsford doesn't do that well in that national redistribution. Well, this is one of the things that we talked about in the coalition mm. and that we were trying to devolve business mm. rates and uh, incentivise areas to create mm. new businesses mm. and initially the proposal was going to be that um, councils could keep all of the business mm. rates from any new businesses mm. that were created then the government decided that would be unfair mm. to certain parts of the country mm. so it was decided that we could only keep some of it mm. uh, and so as always with anything to do with local government finance it just becomes fiendishly complicated and very few people understand it. Mm. Uh, yes, I seem to remember writing some blog posts at the time about how great it was, the stuff the Liberal Democrats were doing in government, about enabling uh, local councils to keep a, a good chunk of business rate revenue from creating more jobs and businesses in their areas. Um, those, it sounds like, from what you're saying, at least in terms of Chelmsford, that, was, that didn't turn out as promising as, as we all hoped it would. That's right. Um, even though Chelmsford is doing quite well. Our high street is thriving compared to many other high streets. Yeah, I, I, every time I've been over campaigning sort of with you and your colleagues, I've been really impressed how prosperous the, the town centre seems. I don't know how typical that is of all of the reach, you know, far reaches of the council area, but the town centre has got remarkably few boarded up shops compared to an awful lot of places in, these well, days. In, indeed, um, we had a John Lewis open mm. um, four, nearly four years mm. ago, and that has been a big uh, attraction for the centre of Chelmsford. Uh, the city council owns one of the shopping centres and uh, has uh, invested in the sort of refurbishment of that over the years. And that shopping centre is thriving. Um, as always, again, we come back to working with the county council on the highways issues and 
and pedestrianisation and cycle routes through the centre of jumps and things like that, which we have to work with the county council on. So the big puddle on the path from the train station to going and to meet Lib Dem campaigners, that is the county council's fault, is it not? Well, probably, (laughs) and if it isn't, I'll blame them. (laughs) Um, Now, obviously, you are not that rare a species in the Lib Dems because there are 50 Liberal Democrat council leaders or co-leaders around the country, but that's still compared to the hundreds of local councils, a relatively you know, relatively rare breed at the moment, something I think we're probably both very keen on increasing. Um, but I just wonder what your thinking is or what your reflections are on how it is that we've managed to win control of Chelmsford Council whilst other areas uh, we've you know, had great teams doing lots of really hard work, often had great issues served up by the opposition, making mistakes over stuff, but not had as much electoral success as you've had in Chelmsford in the last last couple of years? Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't face a spectacularly incompetent mm. Conservative mm. Uh, administration, and whereas some of our colleagues up and down the country did, uh, like in South Cams, mm. for instance, the previous year, uh, we did campaign on issues that weren't necessarily just the City Council's responsibility. So just because it's a City Council mm. district tier election doesn't mean you shouldn't campaign mm. on County Council issues. But I think that the really key thing that we did uh, which not enough local parties do is focus on getting the nuts and bolts of the organisation right because uh, it doesn't matter how brilliant your message is or how fantastic your candidates are if you don't have the organisational capacity Mm. to deliver on a large Mm. scale uh, then you can't win big. Now in Chelmsford is one of those councils which uh, is an all-up council, yeah. so you have a small shift in votes can mean a big shift in seats, and that worked against us in those awful years of 2011 and 2015, but worked in our favour in 2019. We got just over 50% of the vote, um, and not dramatically more, but slightly, rather more than 50% of the seats. And in the wards that we won, though, we were polling most of our seats got over 60% of the yeah. vote. So and and I think and that, that doing, managing to recover so much in 2019 is particularly impressive because you were you had the most unlucky of unlucky electoral cycles, now having two rounds of local elections yeah. during the coalition years. Yeah. Uh, so two rounds in which, sadly, our local government base was really hammered. And um, what, I mean, just thinking through what you said, just starting at the beginning, what was it, do you think, that allowed Chelmsford to survive and recover in a way that many other places haven't yet really managed to recover on anything like the same scale that you have? And certainly talking to people from other places, often the strong impression I get is part of the problem is that we've lost a generation of highly skilled activists. And particularly if you have only elections only every four years, it takes quite a long time for the new generation to begin to learn those skills because you learn so much from fighting elections for the first time and so on. So how, how, what was the secret that allowed Chelmsford to be in a position where it could recover rather than just everything drifting away? Well, indeed, I'll, I'll come back to organisation, um, although I would say just pause for a moment on uh, demographic. We, didn't ha- we don't have such a strong pro-Remain area as some areas that where we've seen success certainly in December's general election, um, Chelmsford was uh, 50-50 in the constituency uh, and a bit more leave in the rural bits. But that brought in a lot of new members, as we know, up and down the country. We had a lot of new members came in in uh, 2015 and 2016. And 
we made a really big effort to engage with all those mm. new members and go around and see them and and sometimes when you're you know hard pressed you know you're all short mm. of time and you have to think about what's going to make the most difference and constantly delivering millions of leaflets is a bit like filling a bucket with a hole mm. in it you have to keep doing it because the water keeps falling mm. out the bottom now what you should be doing is filling the hole mm. um, and that means finding more helpers finding more members getting people involved mm. and so and just to be clear on that point it's not that um you ended up delivering fewer leaflets but it's you had a bigger team of people doing it so the yeah. key activists were so not spending lots of time delivering leaflets. a year out right? a year out from the election mm. when you've got mm. time um we we slightly cut back on the number mm. of leaflets we mm. were delivering um so that we could knock on more doors mm. to recruit helpers we had yeah. a really strong focus on growing your delivery capacity. So um, in the autumn of 2018, we were at about 40-something percent of all our walks having a named deliverer. Mm. <laughs> By the time we got to the spring, mm. almost every ward had got that well above 70%, yeah. and a couple of wards were touching 100% mm. deliverer coverage, which meant that those wards could then send people to other wards so the key activists um, could actually, as I did, spend most of their time in a marginal ward. And also that presumably meant that those key activists who were candidates could spend most of their their campaigning time in the election doing things like talking directly to voters because nothing really beats a voter meeting the candidate in person, at least if they're a good candidate, as I'm sure every single one of yours was, Um, rather than candidates spending time delivering leaflets, which in a sense anyone can do. And we should massively value and thank anyone who delivers leaflets. But that can be almost a slight waste of what is special about a candidate if they're delivering leaflets. That's right. And I think it's we were really clear that uh, we needed to grow the team. Mm. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that in a s- normal local election, the turnout is only in the region of 30-something mm. percent, and, and therefore um, targeting with direct mail and mm. addressed letters and leaflets um, is also really important. And so, getting, as I said, getting the nuts and bolts of your campaign is crucial because actually in a local election it's a very small percentage of the electorate mm. that actually changes yep. the result. Yeah, and, and I guess you were helped a little bit, although you said that the Conservative-run council hadn't thrown up too many horrors for you to be able to campaign on. The Conservative campaign, certainly judging by the piece that one of the senior Tories wrote for Conservative Home at the time, Indeed. which became a little bit notorious, seemed to have been spectacularly bad. I'll include a link to this piece in the show notes, but the key thing is this was written by somebody before the election result was known. And as I recall, basically it was the Conservative saying, you know what, we've, we're not delivering that many leaflets because people don't like them, and we're doing a lot less canvassing because our canvassers don't like what they're hearing from voters on the doorstep. We, and then he went on to say how he thought they were going to win... And you thought, well, if you're, if you're saying you're doing less canvassing because people dislike you so much, maybe you're not on the course to victory. It did seem like a yep. remarkably complacent piece. It was. Piece. It was. I mean, it was, it was the Conservative leader mm. who'd been leader of the council mm. for 16 years. Um, and um, he also said, oh, um, some of our younger candidates mm. think we should do stuff on social media, but we're not going to do that because that just gives the Lib Dems an opportunity to have a go at it online. <laughs> So, um, yeah, basically, um, they were terribly complacent, and you're right, the national picture helped. And another point I'd make about that is that the general picture, um, we were 
unusually fortunate, I don't just mean as, mm. I mean as a party, we were unusually fortunate last April, May, that both the Conservatives mm. and Labour were unpopular. And if uh, there was an area, if it was where the Liberal Democrats were campaigning mm. actively, then we did well. In some of our wards where we didn't have the capacity in the more mm. rural areas, um, it was the independents mm. who benefited yeah. from the anti-mainstream vote. And so not only did the Conservatives lose 26 seats to us, but they also lost yeah. five seats um, to the independents. And then, so after the, as you say, spectacularly good gen, uh, local election results, um, obviously we didn't sadly manage to pull off a equally spectacular general election result uh, in that we don't yet have a Liberal Democrat MP uh, for Chelmsford. Now, there's all sorts of... Uh, thoughts I'm sure you have about the general election campaign and so on. But I just wonder, particularly on this question about how do we go from being successful at a local government level to successful at a Westminster constituency level, whether there are any particular thoughts or lessons that you have, having been so successful at the council election levels, but not yet managing to translate that into general election success? Well, I think historically we've always felt, I think, that we get Lib Dem MPs elected when the focus in the general mm. election is relentlessly on the local activity, the local profile. Mm. And um, in this general election just gone, we, I think, felt that because we'd had a very successful European mm. campaign, so a national scale mm. campaign, when in fact there was almost zero local mm. input, mm. it was very much a national Liberal Democrat campaign, um, that we tried that again for the autumn mm. uh, winter general mm. election and it didn't work because uh, we didn't have that national credibility mm. um, I think also we had an awful lot of people who were not voting positively for the Conservatives mm. obviously they were voting against Jeremy Corbyn yeah. and right up until two weeks before mm. the 12th mm. of December uh, we could see we were, we were getting a good response. And then when the Conservatives poll league dropped below 10%, um, that was really helpful for them because it motivated their people um, to, to, to solid, solidify mm. their vote. And, uh, and an awful lot of people that might have considered voting for mm. us didn't because they felt they had to yeah. stop Jeremy Corbyn. And, and that suggests that where we are able to establish ourselves clearly in the voters' minds as being in second place, which may in part be due to previous election results, may in part be due to level of progress in winning by-elections, council elections in the interim and so on as well. But but being firmly considered locally the challenger is a is a key part of overcoming that sort of that sort of squeeze. Yes, indeed. I mean I think it underlines the point that um we can't we're not always masters or very rarely mm. masters of our own destiny because mm. our success is often a function of what the other parties mm. are doing as well and so that it means it comes back to reading your mm. data which mm. is another really critical point that we uh, deployed actively um, and successfully was you know read the data see how things mm. are going and uh, in the local mm. elections that meant we were able to switch mm. resources we, we established mm. early on that our safe seats were safe mm and that our target seats were increasingly yeah. safe and we could move to the ultra-marginals. Yeah. And I would say the same should apply on a bigger scale for the day. Yeah, and I, I remember when I went to help uh, for the final time in the run-up to polling day in your elections, being sent to 
what looked a little bit of a long shot ward um, and thinking, and actually this has happened to me when I've been to several other places as well, and I remember thinking, this is probably, it either means we're collectively getting, reading the data catastrophically wrong, or it's actually really good news that I'm not being sent to held wards or to the, you know, the very marginal wards, but to what seemed to be like wards a good few notches down. Uh, thankfully, it turned out that actually people were reading the data right, and you know, in the ward uh, that I was sent to when I looked up the result afterwards, it was not quite a close enough result that I can claim credit for having tipped it our way, but definitely a close enough result to have made my trip feel really yep. valuable and worthwhile. Yep. Um, and so clearly, you know, you obviously were managing to read the data very effectively at that council election level. Does that give you any sort of, is there anything that you would draw from that about how we as a party seem to struggle an awful lot more to read the data successfully at a general election level? I don't want to preempt too much what Dorothy Thornhill and her independent review is going to conclude, but that's obviously one of the feelings that a lot of people have out of the general election is, why was I, three days before polling day, being sent to seat X and not seat Y? And when you look at the results, that's clearly there's yeah. clearly some questions there that yeah. you're asking. But why did we not manage to repeat that sort of success, given that you know, you know, in your local elections, for example, you, you, you were managing to read support very accurately? I suspect that it's something to do with the quantity of the, quantity of the data, mm. and there is always a bit of a time lag um, and unless you are tracking, unless you've got enough data to track the changes on a daily basis, which usually the only time we do that is in a parliamentary mm. by-election, where yeah. we've got so many people knocking on doors that we are collecting mm. significant amounts of data daily, mm. um, there's always a problem that your the, the, the weight of your historic yeah. data, over, mm. unless you're really careful about tracking it. Um, and, and also the fact that the national, the national circumstances were, were changing, mm. um, and probably more people made up their mind late on um, than has often been the case yeah. in the past. So, I mean, yes, I guess there were a number of factors in play. Um, I think the data showed us to an extent that our hierarchy of seats was broadly correct. It's just that we were try attempting to push too far up that hierarchy of, of seats so that sort of the order of winnability um, was was reasonably clear it's just that we weren't um we weren't near enough the winning post in many of those and as you say um i've got lots of other thoughts about the uh, yeah. review but we'll leave that for dorothy <laughs> yeah um so in terms of think about the overall picture that you've drawn about where political success has come from it, it sounds to me actually quite similar to what i've heard for example neil Fawcett, our sort of campaign mastermind in oxford western abingdon um, has said, which is actually in both in both cases. And you know, if you listen to you, Stephen, or or Neil talk about the details of what you've done to be successful at winning elections, there's no magic secret. It's much more, or no amazingly clever little magic secret, I should say. Rather, it seems much more almost a culture of relentless competence, yep. and that doing a large number of fairly basic things really well yep. is what makes the big difference. Um, and, and I guess there's a question that prompts, which is at the, at the, our culture in the party, when we talk about campaigning, etc., tends to much more focus on what's the new clever thing, as opposed to how do we become really good and reliable at doing a few basics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but A, the fact that you're nodding suggests you probably have similar well, thoughts, I, but, but I wonder what is it, why is it you think you've managed to, in your local party, have that focus on relentless competence in a way that you know that lots of good people in other parties but clearly haven't managed to do it as successfully say you and Neil have 
Well, I think um, in in this collection, we had we had a couple of people on the core team. I think this was really a really critical mm. learning point. Mm -hmm. um, we had a core team that was agreed on it on the objectives. I mean, I've been on mm. on campaign teams before where it hasn't been um, a mm. single <laughs> agreed objective. The m most notably, when you've had local elections and general elections on yeah, the same day, difficult. which has caused mm. big issues. We've had that a few times. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Dave Brailsford, who's the team performance manager mm. for um, Team GB Cycling. His, his philosophy is marginal gains, yeah. which was get every little bit of the mm. process mapped out and do every little bit a little mm. bit better. Um, and overall, that gets yeah. you uh, a, an increase in performance across the piece. Um, too many of our colleagues around the mm. country seem to delight in saying, look at my perfect hexagonal wheel, mm. um, <laughs> rather, rather than accepting that the circular wheel, which was invented by the guys yeah. down the road, was perfectly mm. serviceable, and they might as well copy that. Mm. Um, the number of times I've heard people say, oh, that won't work round here, mm. um, you know, 99 times out of 100, that's just mm. not right. Yeah. Um, there's so much more that the party can do to improve its organisation and, and learn from best practice. I mean, there's still many local parties who are doing leaflets that, um, that some of us were doing 30 years ago, um, who still have yet to embrace um, direct mail as an essential part of their campaign plan. Um, they, the, you know, social media is a what's that for some people. Um, so there are loads of things on the organisational front that every local party, whether you're targeting one mm. ward or 20 mm. wards, um, could do better. Yeah. And there's a really good book about that sort of ethos of marginal gains called Black Box Thinking, which I think one of the things that it nicely pulls out, and again, I'll include a link to it in the show notes, is that if you're in that culture of marginal gains, you have to be sure you're, you're optimising around the right overall approach because the risk is that you find yourself relentlessly optimising and a, a way of doing things that even when it's perfectly optimised is not good enough. Yeah. And, and arguably, this is actually the mistake that the Dave Berylsford and the Sky, as it was, cycling team made initially, that in their first uh, couple of tilts at the Tour de France, they were massively optimising around something that was just fundamentally not good enough. And it was only when they actually tackled the fundamentals yeah. and then started optimising that that yeah. they then went on on this well, remarkable I think, yes. I mean, I succession think of tour wins. If you just focused, for example, if you just focused on focus, if you just yes. focused <laughs> on your leaflets yeah. and, and, and didn't think about the other aspects, yeah. um, it's, I, I liken the, a successful mm. campaign to being a three-legged stool mm. um, and that you need people, mm. you need uh, money and you need data and they're like the three mm. legs of the stool yeah. and the, the seat of the stool is the candidate or the message that yeah. you're trying to get across the finish line. And if one of those isn't balanced, then the stool will fall yeah. over. So if you haven't got, you can have, if you haven't got enough people, mm. you won't, uh, or enough money, mm. then you won't be able to deliver the message yeah. that will fall over. Or if you haven't got enough data to support yeah. the people and the money. Mm. So um, it's important that you get those really sort of the, the core things right. Um, messaging is important, but it's something, and, and the number, you know, number of words, mm. the number of photos that we use, the, the, the mechanics of leaflets is something we focus on perhaps too much and we lose the rest of the picture. Yeah. Good. That is a very good note to nearly end on. 
But I think in paying deference to your point about not losing sight of the bigger picture, rather than end on a point about leaflet design, we should maybe end with one final question, which is of the things you've managed to achieve so far since becoming leader of the council, what are you proudest of? I think a clear, a clear sense of direction, actually, um, something that which we can measure ourselves and be measured uh, at the next election. The manifesto that we wrote, um, we like recycling, so we just recycled a, the label for a safer, greener, fairer chance was the slogan for a few elections ago. And now that is the council's um, new business plan, which we've now adopted. So we, we've turned our manifesto into a council action plan and now we're going to deliver it. Brilliant. Fantastic. And really exciting, the fact that you are in power, able to not only put out leaflets talking about what we want to do, but put out leaflets reporting back on what we have done. Indeed. So thank you very much for your time, Stephen. Best of luck with running the council and with future elections. And thank you, everyone who has been listening to this edition of the podcast. You can find Nevermind the Bar Charts on Twitter at Bar Chart Podcast. Please do send in your feedback and any suggestions you have for who you might like to hear me interview for future episodes. And do take a look in the show notes that I will add in for links to the book uh, that I mentioned and also that Conservative Home brilliant piece about how not to do campaigning. Thanks and goodbye. (laughs) 